the gladiator. Good evening, good afternoon. This is the gladiator. The gladiator. I'm glad to be here. So, this story begins. I was working a very significant drug traffic in Memphis at the time, 96, 97, 98, around that time. And the guy name was Skinny Pimp, also known real name as Darren Reese. You can Google his name. He's a very significant guy getting drugs out of Miami at the time. I won't go into the full story of him because his story is uh, got several parts of it. But this part is going to be called Call and Call. Well, and we back back to Darren. We seized uh, like 25 kilograms of cocaine from him at, at uh, on one hour. Uh, operations and the cocaine that was packaged was so unique it was packaged like planks of uh, uh, planks like uh, planks in a, in a ship the deck of a ship is the same size as that so I assume that it was brought into the US um, Secreted in the bottom of a of a ship, as though it was um, uh, a part of the part of the boat. But these traffickers have unique ways of bringing drugs into this country, and and you can only imagine the amount of ways that they do it. They uh, they do it in several different ways, and that was just one way. So after we seized the drug from Skinny. And as again, I say, it was kind of unique the way they was packaged. Long by three, one and three quarter foot lint, or they were three, quarter, three quarters of a foot um, in size, about three inches wide. And inside this little plastic container that they had, they had three kilograms of cocaine in each one of them. I'm sorry, let me back up. They had three quarters of a kilogram of cocaine. That would be 750 uh, uh, grams of cocaine in each one of them. They wasn't quite a full kilo, but the way they were packaged, you could get 750 grams of of cocaine out out of each plank. So we had seized that from Reese, and while we was trying to to investigate and follow up on all of the matter, I received a call uh, about a robbery in the Raleigh part of uh, Memphis, where two robbers had came in on a family, a family of young girls who was left at home by their mother and three or four of the uh, children in the house was tied up and a young one of the uh, older young ladies 
was upstairs in one of the bedrooms and she heard the commotion downstairs and she immediately dialed 911 with the um, cordless phone while hiding in the closet. And the robbers did not get her. I don't believe that they even found her in the house because they was actually coming in the house looking for drugs. And they had guns, they had ski masks, they had weapons, they was dressed in black. They was dressed like robbers and it was dark outside. It was at night when they came into this house and forced their way in. And again, these were young kids who was tied up and, and duct tape was placed around their mouth. And these two robbers searched the house. One of them went in the attic and found a um, duffel bag full of like 10 to 15 kilograms of cocaine, packaged the same way as um, I previously mentioned. So when I get there on the scene, I'm working with DEA and there's Mrs. Police officers everywhere. And Bob Reich, the FBI agent and I, we work together. We made the scene there and spoke with the lieutenant and they allowed us to look around. When I looked around and saw the drugs, I immediately recognized those same type as the one we had seized. So this was drugs coming in Memphis, coming from the same source somewhere. And further investigation found that they had two guys in custody after the young lady upstairs had called the police and dialed 911 and called the police. Well, the police got there before the robbers were able to, to leave the house. And one of the police officers actually uh, caught one of the guys as he was exiting the door and another guy ran out the back door. But the police, smart as they are, they did an outstanding job on this Memphis Police Department. Uh, hats off to you. The other officers went round back when he came on the scene. And that strategy worked out because they caught the first guy who came out and put his hands up after they put drew down on him with their weapons. He surrendered. This was Carl Brown. They put him in a squad car and was um, searching the house because they knew it was another one. And then the, the uh, people inside, the young young people inside, told them there was another one. So they searched the house well, didn't find him. They went outside to shed and found the other guy. His name was Carl Scruggs. He was hiding somewhere in a shed underneath something. From what I remember, they caught him too. And they asked him what was the guns that they had, and he pointed them. He had dished them in a, in a garbage can, and they recovered the guns. And so the investigation became rather, well, it intrigued me. And I'm saying, what is this dope doing over here at this particular house, like a middle-class black neighborhood house? You never would have suspected, but 
That's just how the drug world is. They use people. The owner of the house at the time was a Karen White. And I found out from informants that Karen was dating this guy, Renard Rice. They called him Nardo. Renard was Skinny's number one guy. So, Nard was uh, married at the time. He lives in Frazier, but he was dating Karen. Karen was his chick on the side. His chick on the side. So, bring Karen in. Karen, of course, she don't know much about this, and she don't know what's going on, and she don't know how the drugs got in her house, and all of that, so, Karen, are you dating Renard Rice? Yeah, yeah. She admitted that, yeah, that's my boyfriend. But he does have a key to my house, and he could have put him in the house with, without my knowledge because he does have a key to my house. He could have put him there. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Renard didn't come to get him like that. So, who... who how would someone know that you was keeping drugs in your house? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't know. I didn't know anything about it and all of that. And that's her story. She don't know much about it. So we don't stop there. We get to interviewing Carl Brown and explain uh, what he was facing, that he was in the state system at that point where we planned to bring him over in the federal system if he did not uh, cooperate. I mean, that's a threat that you can use a lot in this type of work. And these bad guys know the difference between fed time and state time. they rather do state time, most of them. He didn't really want to come to the federal system, but we talked to Carl, and Carl pretty much was on the same team. He didn't want to get charged federally, but this was a federal case. It was because uh, it linked back to Skinny. So we told him we was gonna charge him federally just to get him in the system. And since they was cooperating, um, they would get the benefit of cooperation. They would get a Rule 5K1 uh, motion, which, uh, Tommy Parker, the prosecutor at the time, had offered their attorneys. So they told us that how they knew the drugs was in the house was a young lady named Yolanda Franklin, who was Karen White's sister, had suspected that her sister Karen was keeping drugs in her house for Renard Rice. Well, Yolanda was dating Carl Brown. So, in order to find whether or not the drugs were there or not, Yolanda, being Karen's sister, happened to stop by Karen's house one day. And while she was there, her one of her nieces wanted to drive her car. And Yolanda let the niece drive her car to the store because that's all she was going to let her go. And the plan was 
let let her drive the car to the store while she's gone with the rest of the kids. Yolanda would look around the house and see if she could locate the suspected cocaine that was being hidden there. And she did. She found some cocaine in a duffel bag in the attic, in Karen's attic. And you got to know, I don't know if Karen knew it was there, but she probably did. But it's kind of like one of those blind knowledge. You know what this guy's doing. But um, as long as you don't see it, you're all right with it. You know why he's giving you money. You know why he's doing all these nice things for you. Uh, yeah, he may like you. He does. I'm sure he did. But you have become a, a tool that he can use also. And so going forward, after Carl and Carl told us that, we went and grabbed Yolanda. Well, she lawyered up, and she didn't want to be known as the person that almost got her kids, uh, her 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 nieces and nephews hurt by these robbers because they didn't really care. One of them was uh, supposedly um, had had um, sexually assaulted one of one of the young ladies in the house. Uh, I, I think I remember uh, one of the younger ladies. One of them was supposed to uh, did something to him uh, while they was tying him up. I, I don't think we prosecuted that part of it. But bottom line, we caught the robbers. We found out how the drugs got there. And we was going forward to prosecute all three of them. At me, Carl Scruggs, Carl Brown, and, and Yolanda Franklin. Tommy Parker charged him with aiding and abetting in a tip to possess cocaine by committing a robbery and brought it to the federal system. And so we discovered that who committed the crime, why they committed, and when did they commit it. Because again, Yolanda, after finding the cocaine in the uh, in her sister's attic, she contacted Carl Brown and Carl recruited his buddy Carl Scruggs and the two Carls went to the house with the explicit intent of getting that cocaine of course when they got it they was going to make some money and sell it put it back on the streets they probably would have profit way over in excess of um, $200,000 at that time because they, they didn't pay for it they was just stealing it and they was going to get rid of it and make some money. And this is the, the thing with drug dealing. Pretty much. Is that you selling drugs, slinging drugs. You're more afraid of the robbers than you are the police. Because the police, most police going to take you in custody. And that's about it. And charge you. But robbers, they'll tie you up. They will beat you. They will assault you sexually if you're female. They will do anything they can for you to get, for you to tell them 
what they're looking for, whether it's money or drugs. Uh, drug dealers don't want to deal with the robbers because the robbers, robbers are rootless, rootless, and they don't really care. They have one purpose alone. So, as the case went forward, Carl and Carl somehow decided to back out of their cooperation. I don't really understand why. Uh, and the other side of it, Yolanda decided to testify. She flipped and said she was going to tell the truth. She really had to had to, had to come to Jesus meeting on that because I met Karen and Yolanda's mother and very uh, uh, religious woman and her mother was, was was torn up about that whole situation. I must uh, I must say, and I can I can only imagine what she was going through with both her daughters uh, being in jeopardy. And I don't believe Karen got charged, but Yolanda did because Yolanda was um, uh, definitely uh, involved in a robbery, and Karen may have gotten charged for. Uh, using letting allowing the house to be used as a as a place to store drugs, but the, the trial went on. But for Carl and Carl, both of them got found guilty. Yolanda did testify. Both Carl got found guilty, and, and as I remember, they both got over thirty years in prison for uh, committing that robbery with firearms. And of course, when you do. Use firearms; it only escalate the charges. When you commit any crime using a firearm or a weapon, the charges are only escalated. So, at the end of this particular part of the investigation, both were found guilty, and both did due time. And the connect to this whole story of Carl and Carl was Carl Brown had a had a. Uh, young brother named Marcus Brown. And Marcus Brown was the first time I did undercover work on Marcus Brown, who was known as Zunk at the time. Zunk did the, uh, was a drug dealer in South Memphis around Crompton, Mississippi, and uh, some of the homes, either Fowler Homes or Foot Home or Claiborne Homes, I can't remember, but Mainly in the uh, projects that was near the Club Paradise uh, Club there in Memphis, which is a well-known place for a lot of uh, older Memphians. They are very familiar with the Club Paradise. There, but whatever this name of this this project community that near there. So I had an informant who told me that. Uh, a lot of drugs were being sold, and he wanted. To, he came to the office, volunteered himself to be an informant, and his name was Toby. And Toby's dead now. Toby's death is a mystery. I, I don't, I don't know. I just know he was killed um, later on, years after this case was over. With, I really don't know why. But Toby says that Malcolm. A guy named Malcolm could hook us up on whatever amount of drugs that we needed. And so I went undercover 
I want to get the experience of undercover. And undercover is, is, is no easy, no easy task at all. But this part of the uh, undercover would be rather easy because uh, you got guys trying to sell drugs and uh, they want new customers. So Toby has, uh, has the go-between, hooked me up with Mal- Malcolm and Malcolm looked at me. Of course, I was a little older, a little younger than I am now. I've had to be in my 33, 34, 35, something like that. I was still, that mean I was still relatively young. Still had a little, a little fire to do that type of stuff. And drugs, the narcotics game, narcotics investigators is primarily for the young men, for the young people. The older you get, the less you do stuff like that undercover work. Because most of the roads don't really require older guys like me. But sometimes they do. Anyway, we went to this project, walked over there, drove over there in my undercover vehicle. I was given an undercover vehicle. Myself and Toby drove over, over there looking for Malcolm. At that time, people didn't have cell phones like they do now. Today, I remember we texted him, and he said, meet him over there. We get there, we met him. Toby introduced him to me, and I um, shook his hand, what's up? He looked at me, and I could tell why he looked at me. I must not look like the regular customer. Yeah, I am looking like a football player, talking about buying drugs. Well, drug dealers are... A skittish, yeah. They notice that kind of stuff. I mean, number one, they know they can't be able to get over on you uh, just because of your size. And plus, they don't, uh, they may suspect you as being the police, which I was. We went on and met uh, Malcolm, and Malcolm said, um, What we're looking for, we told him a couple ounces of crack and I remember I had money enough like 2000 on me and at the time ounce of crack was maybe going for like 800 900 something like that 800 it was it was kind of cheap you buy an ounce of crack you may pay six seven hundred something like that I can remember but I do remember I had money with me and so as an undercover I always keep the money with me and Malcolm made a call or two, got a text back, and said, uh, where you caught? Let's go up here to the corner of uh, Mississippi and Crump. And there was an auto detail, auto body shop, brake shop, tire shop. I think it was a tire shop there, located right there at the Triangle area. We drove up there, and we got out, standing around, waiting and so as we was waiting maybe 15 minutes uh, I see a brown hoopty uh, look like an older vehicle roll up, roll by us and he went to the rear of the entire shop it was a little, little road or a little path that you could pull up behind there and Malcolm motioned us to follow him. 
we followed him around back, and I guess this is where uh, this guy Zonk did his drug dealing at. He did his drug dealing at that location. He would, so he pulled up. Malcolm jumped in the front seat with Zonk, and I'm in the back seat behind him, and so is Toby. And the guy looked, looked, turned around, looked back at us, and said, "What y'all want?" And I said, um, two or three, uh, two or three of them ounces of them things. Uh, you know, talk to drug talk. And he handed us, I think, two ounces of a uh, crack. And I can, it was crack because it was in a, like a little golf ball size. And then the crack, looking at it, it was hard and kind of like yellowish. Uh, it was still warm. I remember that. He had us two bags and said how much he said, whatever he said the price was, I don't remember, but I gave him the money. And as I was giving the money, passing it to him, he took it. And he was counting the money so fast, I noticed that, how fast he was counting. You could hear it just. And uh, he said, uh, it's good. He shook his head like it was all good. And I said, uh, why don't you give me your number, man? I can hook you up. And he said, no, just, just holler at Malcolm, you know, like you did. And I could see him pass Malcolm something. It looked like it was a couple of bills, maybe 100, maybe 200. I don't know. And we got out of the car and walked back to my car and got in my car, dropped Malcolm back off. And I took the drugs back to the office and processed and tied them up and was really looking to further this investigation and so we later on we we did a search warrant on Malcolm House who was uh, and this was before the Carl and Carl situation because Carl was in jail Carl Brown was in jail at that time so we went to his house to arrest Sunk Marcus Brown and we did and we tried to get him to cooperate well he didn't and we went to trial, and Toby testified, and I testified, and my part based on what I did, and, and Marcus, aka Zonk, got found guilty, and I believe he got a 10-year sentence. And so I just want to share this whole story with you uh, today about the call and call. Brown situation and that whole ordeal and plus the undercover part which was connected to the Browns. I hope you enjoyed it. hope you're listening and this is the Gladiator and I'm going to sign off right now but we'll see you next time and just remember if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. Good day. The Gladiator.